little from what I uh, talked about yesterday, but look in a way at patterning, which was the subject of this uh, retreat. And tonight I would like to look specifically at the pattern in terms of thought, and then tomorrow I look more at patterns in terms of emotions. So first I'd like to read uh, a short poem that was uh, said by the Buddha. And that's what he says about thought and patterns. He said, the thought manifests as a word. The word manifests as a deed. The deed manifests into habit. And habit hardens into character. Towards the thought and its way with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. In a way, here what the Buddha is saying is that in a way what we are going, what we are thinking, in a way will come at what we are going to say. What we're going to say will also become what we're going to do. What we're going to do, in a way, if it's repeated, will turn into habit. And that, in a way, will become our character. And in a way, this is not often obvious to us, but this is very obvious to others. When they hear us doing something repeatedly, and you kind of, some people, you know what they're going to do often. You say, ah, they're going to do that. Because there is that, in a way, it becomes nearly your character. And so he said, watch the thought. Be careful, in a way, of the thought. Be careful of the way it kind of, in a way, propagate around your being and let it spring from love. So he's not saying, don't think, but he's saying, watch out. And can your thoughts spring from love, born out of concern for all beings, meaning yourself and everybody else included. And in a way, this is what I'll talk on the last night, when I will talk about compassion. But tonight, we'll talk about thought, which possibly during the few days sitting, you might have become familiar with what you think. So meditation, as I said yesterday, meditation for me is about in way, creative awareness. So not a bear staring at awareness, but really an awareness which encounter the world, which engage with the world, and which respond to the world. And to me this is very different to what I would say blind reaction born out of habit. For me, creative awareness creates space so that in a way there can be creativity. Because often we, we react and it's very blind. We just kind of react. And often sometimes we say things or we do things that we really regret afterwards. But it's so automatic. And so in a way, these habits, they don't come out of nowhere. They generally come out, I think, from a very powerful moment in our life where we've been hurt. And so they kind of emerge as strategy of survival, which were very useful at some point in our life, very often especially in our childhood. Also mechanism of self-protection, because we were hurt, so we kind of try to find ways to protect ourselves. But in a way, nowadays they might not be so useful. Maybe they kind of, in a way, outlived the usefulness of that moment, possibly so long ago. 
Because it is true as human beings, we are very complex conditioning. Because in a way life unfolds, life happens to us. There is an influence, a condition of our family, our society, our gene, what we do, the choice we make. And often you think, well, if only I had not done this, or because I did that, and that happened, and that happened. It's quite interesting if we look at our lives, how little choices make such a big difference, actually. And so, in a way, we constitute it by all this. And out of this very complex conditioning, then emerge, I think, these habits, these grooves, these patterns. And I think they can be mental, they can be emotional, they can be physical, but in a way, it's kind of like they're not separate. They could all feed into each other. So also I talk of the mental, I think, within it too, in a way there is emotional and physical. But I'm just trying to kind of, for the sake of discourse, to kind of uh, look at it. And personally, through the meditation, I have started to see that actually there is three, one could say, manifestations of these habits, of these grooves, of these patterns. And I think it's important to see the difference between, you could say, nearly levels of them, because in a way we need to deal with them in different ways. And I would say there is an intense, there is habitual, and there is the light, natural tendency of a human person. And the intense manifestation of our habits generally are due to conditions. This, I think, is very essential. We're not suddenly, totally in intense, mental, or whatever state out of nowhere. Generally, we are in an intense mental state because something happened. Then there is a habitual. And what is interesting there is that it is our tendency. We have tendencies that for whatever reason we build up over time, but often also relatively common. We, a lot of us seem to do similar things. And then there is being human. So there is a light manifestation just because we are human and we can see. And I think we can you know, deal with this in a very different way. And what is interesting then with the meditation, as we concentrate on the breath, or the, on sensation, is in a way to notice, gently, not judging, but just to notice, to in a way become interested in what is it that takes me away? Where do I go? I mean, for myself, I can see myself, ah, you know, gardening. And that's one of the things, very entertaining channel. You know, what I'm going to buy gardening for my nephew. That's one of my latest projects for his work. So, you know, I'll, and I, hey, wait a minute, I was really far away. <laughs> and I can see there, you know, various little seeds that, poof, you know, I will happily go there. So, in a way, that I think, you know, it's kind of noticing what is it that takes me away? What kind of thought, in a way, takes me away from being here, being present? But we also have to see that thoughts are activity of the mind. They are functioning of the mind. So I am not saying there is a problem with thinking. That there is no problem with thinking. I think we are lucky that we can think. That's not where the problem lies, in a way. But the problem is when the thinking proliferates, agitates, 
confuse or burden us. And I think, in a way, it seems to me we can experience that, where we suddenly have just a, we feel fairly happy and fairly okay, and then suddenly there is this thought, and suddenly it proliferates. And, you know, one minute you are happy, and next minute you feel terrible, just because of this proliferation. Or suddenly there is a thought, and we feel very agitated. Or we might suddenly feel very confused. Or we might feel very burdened, like you have this thing in your mind and it's such a weight. So in a way, that's what I'm kind of trying to look at. When in a way there is this kind of thinking becomes possibly exaggerated and also painful. But in a way, that's what is kind of, kind of disturbs us, kind of, uh, kind of unsettles us. So in a way, through the meditation, I think we can notice what is it that obsesses us? What is it that distracts us? What is it that occupies us? And so with the intent, I think what we can notice is that when we sit in meditation and we have what I would call this very relentless, obsessive thought, and you kind of feel it's kind of like this, kind of, you know, running, it's running round and round and round, and you feel you can't get out. You know, it's just going round and round in your head. And I think it's generally because of recent conditions. Something has happened to you, and I think that's what we have to see, that generally generates a shock, a shock within us. Something has happened, and you're shocked. And then this will manifest in very intense thinking, or emotion, or whatever. But I'll talk about this tomorrow. And I know for myself, when my uh, brother died, and also when my father died, I could, for a year, I was disturbed. I could feel there was a shock which reverberated over a year. And then, kind of, you know, I am, can be still relatively sad about it, but for a year I was kind of, you know, relatively unsettled, relatively disturbed, because it is not just a mental thing, but the whole shock of something happening. So I think it's very interesting important to know that although we might be the greatest meditator, if something shocking happened to us, we might not, and we're certainly unlikely to switch it off like that. I think very likely we'll get caught by it and we'll go round and round and round. So I think it is very important to see that. And for example, you can have what I would call a positive shock, like falling in love. And recently I was... Uh, there was this, I was in New Zealand, we were leading a retreat, and there was this young woman who, for a year, had planned to come to this retreat. And, you know, it was very special for her. But just three days before the retreat, she had fallen in love. So after two days of trying to sit, she said to me, well, I think I'm going to go, because I think so much about him, I might as well be with him. I said, why not? I mean, you know, this was... Choice, you know. But it was interesting, you know, the thing she could not, she was just going, you know, thinking about the guy incessantly. And in a way she could, she felt she could not meditate. Because in a way this is a problem with the obsessiveness, is that there is no space. And to me then what we can try to do is to bring a little space within it. To kind of, how can I bring a little thing, a little space within <laughs> this kind of, in a way, relentlessness. And I think one of the things to try to do is to gently 
be aware that oh, that's what's going on, but that you're also seeking here in this very safe place. And through that, kind of in a way, giving a little rest to the organism within that quite energetic kind of obsession. Also for myself, what I do is to kind of say to myself time to time, let it go, let it be. And just for a millisecond, or two or three seconds, just back to the breath, back to the sensation. And of course it's going to come again. And then you kind of get, okay, just for a few seconds, let it go, let it be. And I think this will not stop it because of the energy it has, but at least it can bring a little space within it, and also you can feel you're not totally out of control, which often is what one feels even more unsettled. You feel you can't do anything about this. As to daily life, I think when this happens to us in daily life, I think what is essential is to see that I am not reducible to that thought. I am not just those obsessive thoughts. They're very prominent, they're very intense in this moment, but I'm not just that. Because I think this is one of the pains of something intense like this, is that we, our whole being is just reduced to this going round and round about that, ignoring the fact that I have this body, I have this mind, I have this heart, which has more potential than just kind of, you know, obsessing about this. And it will pass, it will change. We also know that. Then there is a habit and pattern. So they are these grooves, they kind of grooves in the mind. They kind of like channel. And it's fairly repetitive. And it's kind of, you know, I think a lot to do with tendencies that have been exaggerated. You know, what I would call potential we have, which, you know, has been a little distorted and then exaggerated. And meditation is excellent for discovering or realizing our pattern. I think it's kind of an excellent field of possibilities there. Because in a way you are very calm and you are just in this supportive environment where you can look at it in a different way. Instead of thinking, this is not good, I don't want to be like this, which is fairly useless and hopeless because that doesn't change anything, you can actually start to get to know the pattern. This is the first thing to do, is to know the pattern, is to know the habit. How is it? I would say even, how does it taste? Because I would say, pattern even as taste. You can, they have a little feel to them. They also, in order to get to know them, to get to know the language that we use within them, and that accentuate the pattern. And sometimes we can just change the language, and actually that gives space to the pattern. And also to notice what is it that triggers it. Because we don't always do it in the same way. But something cannot be no way trigger it. So now I'm going to go through various patterns. And if you feel that I have not gone over the one you've got, I am always open to more. <laughs> That's the one I've recognized in myself and others I've talked about. My, my main one in the old days when I had great trouble with it, I don't anymore, was daydreaming. 
This was my favorite activity in meditation. I used to sit 10 hours a day or three months at a time, and I would say half of the time I was daydreaming. And what, I was, what was I daydreaming about? That I was going to hermitage in the mountain, I was going to practice hard, I was going to be awakened, I was going to save everybody. <laughs> so I was daydreaming about meditation. Until I realized this was not meditating. And this is the trouble with daydreaming, is that it is very seductive. And I would say the, the, the feel of it is like gooiness. Like, you know, if you're into chocolate cake, it's a bit the same. Ooh! Yeah, ooh! And generally it starts with, what if? If I had, if I was, if I won the lottery, or if I am a famous whatnot, or if I don't know what you might dream of. But what is interesting in the daydreaming, and why we love it so much, and it's so entertaining, and you wonder why she reading the bell so early. This was so juicy and interesting. Because we are making a film, and in it we do everything. We are the scriptwriter, the producer, the actor, we even sell the peanuts. We do everything. So of course it's very entertaining, because it's a mono-reality. And that's what is so seductive. You know, you, you cannot, you know, with it, make it kind of a little better storyline. You're more heroic for whatever. Interesting. And then, but the problem with it, I find, is that then, when you come down from your mono-reality, especially in daily life, if you do this easily, then you get very frustrated with multiple reality which doesn't go according to what you want. And then you get a little kind of painful. So, to me, that's what is interesting to notice. Ah, daydreaming. And I think per se, daydreaming is not a bad thing. Because daydreaming starts with imagination, which I think is a very important creative function that we have. But I think there is a difference with creative imagining and with mono-reality daydreaming. I think the two are very different. Because one, I think, in a way, make us more kind of open and relating, when the other one, in a way, closes off in kind of this world somewhere else. Another one that we can often do in uh, meditation, which is one I would say the second most favorite activity, is what I call rumination. And rumination has a kind of an interesting timing. starts with rumination about the past, and generally there the feel is something stuck, something unpleasant, or something uh, we're not so happy with. So pops in, because nothing else to do, so it pops in. They said this, or whatever happened. And so you kind of, then it's kind of a minor level of obsessing. So you know, they did this, and they said this, and how could they, and it's so hurtful, and how they are then, you go through your loop. And what is interesting with rumination, generally then there is a movement which bypasses the present, but moves to the future. And then you plot how you're going best to get that person. So you kind of basically plot revenge. Very compassionate activity in meditation. You know, they'll say this, I'll say that, and I'll get there. You know, fight! Dagger in the heart. And then, you know, you try to make it the best. 
And again, I think, you know, rumination, I think, come from reflection, come from preparing for something which could be difficult. And I think this is fair enough. This is, you know, one of our potential, of our ability. But I think when we go into a lot of rumination, actually we disempower ourselves. Because we say, you know, this was so bad, and then I'm going to do it that way, instead of, in a way, trusting in this moment. That you, you know, instead of really meditating in this moment, opening to our power, and having, in a way, the trust that when it comes, I'll be able to deal with it. Because generally what you plot never happens. Because they don't say what you think they're going to say. So the kind of, the thing is rewritten. And to me, it kind of, you know, blocks our own potential, kind of, you know, cultivating our own confidence that, yes, it could be difficult, but if I come a little prepared, yes, I could deal with the situation. Then another one we can notice in uh, meditation and on meditation retreat is fabrication. And fabrication, the feel of that, I would say, is fear, uncertainty. You kind of uncertain, you're fearful, you're a little anxious. And this is one of the very interesting way of certain uh, environment is when you're in silence, especially the first two days, and somebody looks at you funny. Mm-hmm. You think, what have I done? Mm-hmm. You know? What's the matter with them? That they, you know, that they have problem with me. And then you create this whole scenario about this person looking at you funny when very likely they had something in their eyes and they were not really looking at you or thinking of you. So fabrication, I think, is actually one of the most painful. Because fabrication is creating something out of nothing or extremely little. And it can be extremely painful. There was this lady on one retreat uh, in uh, Scotland and she spent, at the end, she told us that, she spent a whole afternoon fabricating about a cat who was going to die because a lady was not feeding the cat. And she was crying because it was so sad the cat could not die with her in her home. And I mean, you had this huge thing when the cat was being fed that there was no problem. It's interesting how you have a certain very thing combined and then there is this whole fabrication. Because in a way, to me, what is important is through the meditation process, and I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow, to bring a certain level of questioning. Because we have this idea, because it is in my head, it's true. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of it is true, but not necessarily all of it. And I think it's interesting to ask the question, what am I thinking now? Is this true? Does it correspond to reality? So in a way to bring a little light within that and to really question. But also to see that this fabrication, I think, is basically a survival mechanism, you know, from our past ancestors living in a very dangerous place, where you think, what if? And then, you, you know, you must be prepared and have this, that and that. But it seems to me, I mean, especially if we live in England, generally, and if we don't go into kind of dark places at night in certain then generally life is not so dangerous. So in a way we might. I mean, if you are in South Africa, where I was recently, then it's a very different story. But I think here, 
I think there is sometimes this ancestral fear that then gets fed and exaggerated. So anyway, to try to look, am I fabricating here? Is this really true? Then there is judging. And judging is a little kind of not so kind of a Sometimes it's clearer, sometimes it's a little on the back. But it's kind of this tendency we have to, in a way, judge ourselves, judge others. Sometimes you could say the kind of the critic within ourselves, or the little police person on the shoulder. Kind of, you know, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. And it kind of makes you a little kind of anxious, because there is this kind of seemingly this person checking you out. Kind of, you know, qualifying, quantifying what is going on. And when you judge yourself or other, you're basically putting yourself above yourself and you fix. And you kind of, in a way, policing yourself. And I think, in a way, this is a natural ability we have to discriminate. And it's very important for me to know that this is a glass and this is a microphone. And I don't think could drink from the microphone. So this is a useful function we have, but we have to be careful when it becomes what I would call negatively exaggerated toward the self or toward others. That in a way, that's what I think the meditation can help us to be more in the moment of what it is, as it is, with it necessarily needing to judge it as good, bad, right, wrong, or otherwise. Can we just be with it? And just the way experience it. And then later on see. I mean, if there is any great pain or any great whatever, then we can investigate it. Instead of in a way straight away fixing it. This is like this. This is like that. Then another one one might have is comparing. Interestingly, is comparing. You compare yourself to others. I mean, in terms of the meditation retreat, you might be comparing your sitting posture to the best person sitting posture here. But I mean, everybody, I mean, I, when I was in Korea, we used to sit a long time. And I used to sit with these two ladies who could sit for hours on end. I mean, they could sit for an hour and a half, they could sit for two hours, perfect. And me, I could sit, my 50 minutes, but by the end of the day, I was really kind of in agony. So I was not one of these great meditators sitting for hours on end. That was not me. But, so at the beginning I was a little kind of, you know, I'm really not up to the mark. They're so much better than me. Until I realized that kind of, if I may say so, I may be a little arrogant. I did not think that in terms of being, as human beings, they were really necessarily much better than me. You know, we all seem to be in the same boat. It's just we seem to have different abilities. Physically, they had much more, I think, ability to sit in that posture and possibly had much more resistance to the pain of the posture. So I think it's very important to see that we're careful with comparing. Because I think comparing is a natural ability to take example on others, to copy someone else. And that's how this civilization has arisen. Way, way back, people noticing, oh, this guy is using this type of grade, and this is better than that, maybe we should do the same. 
So in a way, I think that can be useful. You can take examples on others. But we have to be careful that the comparing doesn't become this kind of negative exaggeration of our possibility and in a way the positive exaggeration of the other person. That we kind of not, because I think we create within ourselves that something is not good enough. I am not good enough or the situation is not good enough. Of course, it can be difficult in a situation, then you can decide to do something about it. I mean, I had a friend long ago, now it's a bit different, but she used to compare negatively to everybody, that everybody was better for her in all ways, in relationship, in work, everything. And that made her really, kind of, you know, really sad and really disempowered in a way. And so, in order to make us feel, to make her feel better, before I used to go to see her, I used to try to think something bad about my situation. So at least, you know, she could feel better compared to me, which was a fairly hard work, but I generally managed. And, and now she's not doing this so much anymore. I could see it was such a painful thing, such a painful thing to have this comparing mind in that way. Another thing we might notice when we meditate is planning. And in a way it's kind of, you know, planning, and that's one of the favorite activities. You might have already, after two days here, planned your holiday, planned your mortgage, planned your retirement, or whatever it is you are into planning. I mean, it's kind of fairly nice occupation. But I think one thing we can see, I mean, of course we need to plan. To come here you need to plan. But how many times do you need to plan? This is a question. So my suggestion would be, can you plan five times and then change possibly to another plan or no planning if this is possible? You know, because notice how repetitive it is. You just repeat it, no creativity. So, and planning is again being a, a little ahead of ourselves, not wanting to be surprised. Again, again, kind of diminishing our confidence, saying, well, you know, if I plan this way, that way, that way. And the problem with over planning is that often you plan and you plan and you plan, and then in the last minute, it all disappears. It all, and you feel so frustrated. Instead of kind of, you know, planning just a little and then being open to possibly things changing or being different. And then there is uh, speculating. Speculating, this is more if you have an intellectual bent, you might be sitting here and thinking, well, she said this, I read that, what about this, what about this? <gasps> this is the greatest idea of the universe. You know, I'm going to write a book, mega seller, fantastic, I must remember. So speculation does two things, make this great elaboration, and then generally you try to remember the elaboration because they're so great, and you generally not in the moment, so very much. So I think, again, speculating comes from reflection, from analysis, which I think can be very useful, but I think there is analysis which can be, again, creative and open, and then you don't need to remember it because it will come back again if it's really a worthy and the greatest idea in the universe. But kind of noticing, or we kind of start become kind of, you know, totally enticed by this wonderful, kind of elaboration, but when we really, you know, we don't notice possibly how we're sitting or how is our breath. 
And the last one I wanted to mention was counting. And counting this, somebody, one uh, a retreatant told me about that one. Because he said, you know, I sit in meditation and I count, you know. And possibly, who knows, other people might count the number of the shoes they have in their closet. Him, he was counting his money in his bank. And it's true, he was an accountant. So there was a slight <laughs> professional kind of a habit or tendency. But I think what it also points out is this tendency of the mind to count and to measure. You know, that you kind of counting, kind of, you know, how long you're sitting here, you're counting, and that kind of, this, I think it can be very useful. We need it in our life. But when does it proliferate? And it kind of, in a way, fix again, kind of makes us a little less kind of intuitively open to whatever, because we have this misery mind, this counting mind. So you know, what I was trying to point out with the habit, with the groove, the pattern, is that you have a natural ability, then that becomes proliferated, exaggerated, and then generally then the habit is built. So in a way, one of the effects of the meditation through the concentration is by coming back to the object of concentration, then in a way not feeding the habit, and in a way dissolving the power of the exaggeration, so then you can use the natural functioning of that. So you're not trying to get rid of the functioning, but in a way we're more trying to dissolve the power of the exaggeration. Then there are what I would call light occupying thoughts. So you don't have anything that has happened to you which is kind of shocking. You don't maybe you kind of have meditated for a bit, so now you don't have, you know, so much of this really kind of strong pattern, they kind of downgrade it a little. And then what you find is this light occupying thought. And what you have like shopping list. You know, you kind of sit here, put in the breath, and in the background, you know, maybe when I come back home, let's go to the supermarket for this shopping and I must not forget the sugar and you know, so you kind of shopping list or maybe, you know, clothes in your closet. I mean, one of my shopping lists, what I would call is luggage making, you know, I'm going to go to Korea in June and, you know, I should have this trouser. I mean, I start to make my, my suitcase, you know, two months ahead is a bit early, I think. So, it's, ah, luggage, back to the breath. Another one which is interesting is trains of thought. So, that's very interesting. So, you sit here, the breath, the sensation, and then, for whatever reason, you start to think about Aunt Elga. Yes. And then, five minutes later, you're in New York. And you have no idea how you got there. <laughs> but, and the breath, forget it. And it's interesting. It's kind of, you know, this, you know, you kind of have a feeling you are breathing and you're with the breath. But actually, you also at the same time, it's interesting, you kind of, somewhere else also. So you could also like light planning. Light planning. So just with the breath, light planning. So it's interesting. It's kind of and this I think is very natural. I think you know, this is you know, it just comes. And you know, it just comes, you see it, then you come back, it just comes. I mean this is a natural functioning of the mind. I think this is just you know 
sometimes it stops, but a lot of the time this will be there. I think this is just part of being human. So in a way, in when we are in meditation, I think what is useful is to kind of note very lightly what goes on, but not to kind of, you know, definitely name it, you know, oh, is it daydreaming, <coughs> is it speculating, that doesn't matter. You know, just noticing a little the feel of it or where you were and just gently coming back. Because, you know, this is not kind of like a precise analytic psychological thing. But if you try to find why am I thinking about this now, this is impossible. I think what is interesting is that you are thinking about it now. Not why, because ten years ago, five years ago, whatever, or it started. I mean, with train of thought, don't try to find where it started, because it's impossible to come back. So just to notice, just to notice very lightly. So as you watch the breath, just noticing those the things. Because the thing with, with thought, if you try to focus on the thought themselves, generally they disappear. That's what is interesting. You know, sit here, okay, look at your thought. And actually there is nothing. So that's why I think it's easier to notice them on the side. So you concentrate on something and then you just notice, you know, what is coming up in my mind and you might notice that actually this is something that will come up in your daily life. That's why I think it's interesting because generally those patterns that are a little kind of uh, obstacle, a little kind of limiting in our daily life, they will kind of, you know, will become more obvious as we sit here in, in this quiet space. So to be careful of in a way not judging the thought, this is not what this is about, but to me, it's in a way the difference is that by meditation over time, make the thought lighter, so that it can be like this fluffy white cloud. They just come and they pass through. I can take them out if I want. I can take them, let them go if I want. And they're not that kind of heavy burdensome, so that there is no kind of space within it. Now, I don't have so much time, but I want you to kind of give you a little kind of uh, shall I do that? I have eight minutes, let's see if I can. Because there is this text which actually is a text of the Buddha called the Vitaka Santana Sutta and this is called the Discourse on the Forms of Thought and in it the Buddha gives you five methods how to deal with negative thought and I think they are very interesting so I'll just try to go briefly through them so, because I don't have much time so the Buddha says, if you have negative thoughts which appear out of strong desire, strong aversion, or strong confusion, then the first thing you can do is turn to a positive, skilled thought. And every time you give a simile, it's like kind of knocking out a big peg with a small peg. And if you think about it, you know, we kind of having this negative thought, oh, that person is terrible, and they're always terrible, and they're always da-da-da. And then you could bring, in a way, a kind of space within it by thinking, wait a minute, this person actually has done kind things to me. They're not always difficult, they're not always mean. So that it would shift, it would not stop you experiencing whatever you experience, but it would shift the kind of the, the way you feel about it. Another one is, for example, if you were late, if, if you're waiting for somebody and they're late, 
And it's very interesting when we wait for somebody and they're late, what generally do we do? Oh, they're not coming, then you go into they don't love me, nobody loves me, I hate the world. I mean, very quickly, you become kind of rather intense. And this happened to me once, you know, somebody was waiting for somebody not coming, and then I thought, well, maybe I should phone to ask. You know, maybe there is a good reason for the person not to be here. So I phoned and said, oh, I thought it was next week. So I think it's, in a way, to kind of turn to something which is more skillful, which in a way will open the space. If this doesn't work, then there is, and the next one is that if the negative thought with the face continue, we could contemplate the peril of the thought. And we could, in a way, see if I continue with this negative thought, it will be painful for me, it could have a painful result. And so through that, to in a way seeing the danger of it. That's what the Buddha says, see the danger of the thought. That if you continue that way, then it's going to be very painful. And so that in a way can make you see it a little differently, again bring a little space. And then you could in a way help yourself to shift it by the third method. With the third method is very interesting in terms of awareness practice. It totally goes against it. And he says you should cultivate forgetfulness and lack of attention. Now I can tell you this after two days. And to me, I find that very skillful of the Buddha to say that actually awareness doesn't mean that you have to be aware no matter what, however intense, however dreadful. He's saying when something is too much, just turn your attention away. And it's what I would call creative distraction. And I would say this is a very vital tool to see that I am in this state, this is really difficult, and then do something which you know will help you, which is, you know, for myself, it would be to go and read a book, to go for a walk in nature, or to go and talk to somebody. All of us might have different means. But I think this is important, because you have awareness practice doesn't mean no matter what you must be aware, even if it's killing you. Do something about it. You know, as the Buddha said, forget about it. But find a method which can help you to forget about it, you know, what I would call a healthy way. Then the next one is interesting. This is to attend to the thought function and form of the thought. So there is a negative thought, a very kind of heavy, difficult one. And you kind of, what am I thinking? Could I be thinking about something else? So in a way you kind of inquire into it. You kind of, how can it kind of be a little kind of different? And I think one of the ways we can do this is through the language. To kind of notice those trigger words that really get us going. And what I would say one of the trigger words is, this is unfair. When you say that in yourself, generally, oof, you can generally, there is heat. Interesting, this is unfair. Could you move it around? Personally, the way I, I deal with it, I say, yes, true, the, where the world is not necessarily a fair place. See, the way I cannot play with it, but you might play with it in a different way. Or if you say to yourself, I must do this. Well, possibly, maybe you could or not. So you way to try to move it around, to play with it. And the last one, here, psychotherapists should not listen, because this goes against everything, but 
why not? This is by the mind, subdue, restrain, and dominate the mind. So basically saying, you know, sit on it. <laughs> but personally, the way I would read it would be that not so much as an image of repression, but in a way as an image of power. But actually, I would say that we are stronger than anyone thought. That in a way, the meditation is to help us to build our power so that we can be stronger than anyone thought. And recently, I was uh, with, uh, in South Africa, we visited a jail where there is a, a Zen group of uh, uh, people, and it's kind of a high, uh, high security jail, uh, with uh, yeah, most of the people in there are murderers. And there is this group of people who are about 15 people who come and do meditation, and they're very dedicated, and they're very bright, and they're wonderful, and warm. And to me, it was kind of the sadness of, you know, it was very sad to be with them at one level. It was very inspiring, because I knew all of them had killed somebody. And very likely, all of them had killed somebody because they could not restrain themselves. They could not restrain their thought. They, they kind of were taken over by this thought of revenge or getting rid of or whatever it was. And then, in a way, they killed somebody and also they, in a way, made them imprisoned. And now they are 15, 20, some 30 years in jail. And, and, and that's when I read this, this kind of, it seems to me that, in a way, the meditation is helping us there to kind of develop, in a way, a spacious, kind of, it's a powerful mind, but not a powerful mind in a military way but a more powerful mind in terms of being more confident, more wise, more creative, so that when something happens, one can see several solutions, instead of kind of, in a way, instinctively trying to get rid of whatever is in the way. So, my time is up, and that's what I wanted to say today. Thank you.